Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. So we continue talking about the Christmas story and the events leading up to the birth of Jesus, which we will uh, get to in chapter 2. Luke chapter 1 and verse uh, 46, and we'll read down to verse 56. Just a, some background. So last week we talked about the uh, announcement to Mary that she was going to have a baby. And that baby was going to be Jesus. So Mary, an angel comes to Mary and says, uh, you're going to have a baby even though you've never been with a man. And it's going to be God himself that you're going to give birth to. He's going to save everybody. So it was a big announcement. So when it's over, it says in verse 39 that she arose as fast as she could. She ran to her cousin Elizabeth's house. Elizabeth was also pregnant, miraculously. And when she got there, Elizabeth, when she greeted Elizabeth, the baby that was in Elizabeth's stomach, about six months old, which would be called John, actually leapt, like jumped up, like kicked. If you've ever been pregnant or if you ever felt a, a baby kick in the womb, John did that when he heard the voice of Mary. And then Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and actually gave a prophecy that Mary's baby would be God himself. And that she says that I, I know it and that the baby in my belly knows it. And he actually prophesied for the first time before he was born. Side note, babies that can feel joy and respond to the presence of the Holy Spirit and to Jesus' presence are people, should be treated as such as evidenced by John's response as a six-month-old um, in, the, in the womb, uh, second trimester, he responded with joy. The Bible says he responded with joy to Jesus' presence. Then we come to our text, which is Mary's response. Mary's response to Elizabeth's prophecy. And here's what Mary says. And this is called the Song of Mary. It's Hebrew poetry. It's, it's, a, it's basically the first Christmas carol. And she says in verse 46, And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Three months would be nine months, so she probably stayed till John was born and then returned. Mary's response to this prophecy so Elizabeth says to Mary, you are the mother of my Lord. God has come down to earth as a baby, as an infant, and Mary is his mother. Mary's response to this prophecy is much better than her response to the angel. If you remember, she responded to the angel in a good way in faith. She said, okay, whatever you say, I'll do. But it was probably a little bit of a shock to her. So in this case, in this passage, she responds with a song of praise. God has changed her her spirit, by manifesting his character in this world. That's the meaning of Christmas. The meaning of Christmas is God has manifested who he is in our world, 
in a physical and a real and historical way. And Mary got that. And she responded with a song of praise. So we're going to look at two things here. We're going to look at Mary's example and then Mary's God. Who Mary was, what she did, how it's a witness to us, and then who she's talking about. So we look at Mary. It's funny, when I think of Mary, I think of a very serene, mature, uh, dignified woman, right? No. She was probably 15, maybe younger. It's hard to tell. She could have been even younger than, she could have been 13. She could have been anywhere from 13 to 18. In other words, she was a teenager. So when you think of Mary, if you need images, there's some teenage girls in our church. Think of them. Don't think of the older ladies. Mary was a teenage girl. She didn't know anything. She was also socially marginalized. She's a woman, a teenage girl, in a patriarchal society, which meant no one cared what she said. That's what it means to live in a patriarchal society as a woman. No one cares what you say, especially if you're a child. So she's a woman, she's a teenager, in a society that doesn't care much about her except as property of a man. She, um, she's got a baby, and she's not married, which... Talk about social stigma. She lives in the ancient world. You know what the ancient world's like? It's terrible. We were just talking about this morning. There's no indoor plumbing. There's no internet. There's no phones. There's no cars. There's no prepared food. It was a tough life, especially like Mary when you're at the bottom of the food chain. See, she wasn't just a young girl. She wasn't just socially marginalized. She was poor, like really, really poor like day-to-day poor. She's in a country that's being oppressed by a foreign nation, so they're having to pay taxes to other people. She lives in a very small town, and it's basically hand-to-mouth, poverty-stricken. In other words, Mary's in about the worst place you could be in the world. Her life is terrible in one sense. But look at her reaction. Look at who she manifests herself to be as a teenager, Her song is better than anything we can produce individually. So if I say to you, Jesus is born, give me a paragraph version of your response. What would it look like? Would it be this good? Would it be as good as Mary's song? So at 15, as a teenager in a poor country with no technology or anything like that, she is theologically adept. She knows what the Bible teaches at a doctrinal level. The language she uses here, my soul magnifies the Lord, God my Savior, the lowly state of his maidservant, she's quoting from the Old Testament. She's not using direct quotes, which is easier. She's using the the format of the Old Testament. You see, there's, there's a kind of knowledge where you know what the words are and you can repeat them. Then there's a kind of knowledge where you understand the concepts and you can speak in the conceptual language. That's what Mary's doing. She's saying, I'm going to use the kind of language that the Old Testament uses to express my beliefs here. We, we, uh, at the beginning of the service, we uh, read Hannah's song. Hannah was a woman in the Old Testament who couldn't have a baby. Then God blessed her and gave her a miracle, and she had a baby, and she, she sang a song. This song mimics that to, to a large degree, which means Mary had that song memorized. Then it talks about other things. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their imagination of their hearts. Does anyone talk like that? Much less teenagers? 
she's got a grasp of the, of the Bible that we should envy in a place that has no Bible app. She didn't have her own copy of the Bible. She had to go to the temple to read the scripture. You realize how different that is for us? How many Bibles do we have access to? Physical copies, multiple. Plus, you have the Internet. If you have a phone, you have an app. I have at least three apps on my phone with Bible versions on them. Mary had none of that. And yet here she is quoting the Old Testament, speaking of God's character, speaking of the redemption narrative. She's talking about how God had worked in the Old Testament. Do we understand that? Do we understand the concept of God's story of saving the world enough to produce a song about it? Spur of the moment? It says here at the bottom, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. She's saying this baby that's going to be born in me is a fulfillment of a story that started a long time ago, thousands of years ago. And here's how God has worked through the Old Testament to produce what's happening to me right now. That's a grasp of the story of the Bible that is a model for us. And remember, she's 15. Is that how we are? Is that how we're raising our kids? I believe that her grasp of the Old Testament exceeds most adults' grasp. What excuse do we have? If Mary, in her position, can know the basic language of the Bible and the basic story of the Bible, there's no excuse not for us not to know it. Sometimes I think we feel like, well, I don't have a seminary degree, or I didn't go to Bible college, or I didn't grow up in church, or I don't really know all that stuff, so I can't expect, be expected to know all this stuff that the preacher knows or the books know. Yes, you can. If Mary can know it, you can know it. Mary was taught this. She wasn't taught this when she became a teenager. She was taught this from a child. Are we teaching children the same thing? Are we raising our kids in a way that at 15 they can produce this? No, we're not. Why not? I don't know. That's not what the message is about. This is just about what you're supposed to do. But it's setting up something for us. It's a, it's a symbol of hope that the Bible is not for old scholars. The Bible is not for mature Christians who've been around in church for a long time. The Bible is for teenagers. And everything that you need to know about the Bible, you can get as a 15-year-old, poor, isolated person. So if you don't have it, it's not your fault. It's not your status's fault. Do we treat people like that? Do we treat teenagers like that? Mary here is quoting Old Testament, giving the history of Israel, mimicking the language of the Bible. How do we talk to our teenagers? We sing silly songs, and we tell funny stories, and we play games. What's the disconnect here? Here's the disconnect. Mary didn't have the luxury of playing games. She said, all I've got is what God has given me. We give our teenagers and ourselves sort of this leeway of like, just take it easy. There's plenty of time. Wait till you grow up. Enjoy this time in your life when you don't have to be serious about anything. Which is a cop-out. Because teenagers do have serious things to worry about. And until we address the teen suicide rate, we need to stop with the games and get more back to what Mary's doing. You see, what Mary has here is a life crisis where she gets pregnant at 15 with no husband. 
How do we deal with that? Mary's got a better reaction than the whole church does. This is the reaction to life problems, to crisis moments. It's bring up the knowledge of what God has done and apply it. But you have to be ready. You have to be training people to say, life's about to get really tough, and I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen. It could be at 10. It could be at 30. But before it happens, I'm going to teach you what the Bible says, which means you have to know what the Bible says. And then it's not just a bunch of stuff that PhDs in seminary talk about. Because a PhD in seminary, did you see where that went? Okay. But I need that in a minute. <laughs> Thanks. I was afraid it fell through the cracks. Lost forever. Are we, are we treating people like this? Are we treating women like this? In our church, are women expected to know the Bible? To be able to formulate a history of God's mercy through the Old Testament to apply it today? Or is that the man's job? Are we treating our young people like this, where they're expected to be able to express the gospel story that they're a part of in their own words? Or do we wait till they're 18 or 20 to do it? It's too late. It is absolutely too late when they become 18. And if you look at, at the status of the church today, when teenagers hit 18 or 20, they leave. And there's a mass exodus from the church of young people. What happened? Nothing happened. That was the point. They were put on a holding pattern until they got to be adults. It was too late then. So what Mary's saying here is God deals with individuals, and he's no respecter of persons. And if you're a 15-year-old teenage girl or a 30-year-old man or a 60-year-old woman, doesn't matter. The Bible's for you. And it can be understood by you, and it can help you. And if something like this happens to you, you should be ready to, to express God's mercy. You see, look what Mary says here. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That word soul and spirit, in Hebrew it's a parallelism. She's saying the same thing twice in different ways. She's saying that part of me that's on the very inside, the part that no one sees, the part that is not in the world, that part is different. That part of me is magnifying God. You see, for Mary, this gospel story was not the church's story. It was her story. She had an inward change in her very inward core being. She says, God has changed me in my spirit. Now think about the context. God has not brought her out of poverty. God has not made her into a powerful person. In fact, her life has gotten worse. She's now a marginalized woman with an illegitimate child. But her spirit had been changed. That's what we need. What's the point of all this? Is so that you'll be different, so that when the world takes you down, your spirit is okay. Amen. See, if your soul and your spirit and your inward person is strong, you can handle anything. But you break someone's spirit, doesn't matter. That's why rich kids in California, in this one town, this high school, rich high school kids are killing themselves. Why? They've got a great education, they've got a lot of money, they're perfectly safe, why are they killing themselves? Because something broke their spirit. Here's another teenager whose life should have broken her, but her spirit magnifies the Lord. 
See, that's what the Bible's offering you. It's not offering you money. It's not offering you friends. It's not offering you a life that's going to be comfortable. It promises none of that. What it promises is this. Your soul and your spirit are going to be fine. God can change you from the inside. And when the whole world falls down around you, you'll be fine. Your spirit will be fine. The question is, how do we get to where Mary is? With all of our technology and all of our resources and all of our knowledge that she doesn't have about who Christ is and what he's going to do for us, how do we get to the place where we can be strong in our spirit? We want our circumstances to be changed. If God would just fix this for me, I would be better for it. So our prayers reflect that. What do you pray for? That's what you think will make you happy. God, do this for me, and then it'll be okay. Mary doesn't pray for that. She says, I'm fine no matter what. Why? Because Mary knows God. Mary knows God. And she talks about most of this song is about God. It's not about her. The first two verses are about her. My soul magnifies. He's done this for me. Then the rest of it is talking about God. Do you want to know how you can make it in this life? Stop looking at yourself and start looking at God. That's it. That's the secret to the Christian life. Look at God. And that's what Christmas tells us. You don't have to imagine God. God came down to this earth. God manifests himself in this world in a real historical way 2,000 years ago. That's what Mary's talking about. It's not just the idea of God. It's God with us. God born. God with flesh and blood. And look what she says in verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Mary knew that God was powerful. Do you believe that Mary, as a virgin, had a baby who was God? It's a little bit hard to grasp, isn't it? From what I know about biology, it doesn't work that way. But if you know God, it's no problem. There's not a single miracle in the Bible that is any problem if you understand who God is. If God is the all-powerful creator, of course he does miracles. Of course he, he gets, lets women get pregnant when they're old. Of course he raises people from the dead. You see, the problem is not with the miracles. It's your view of God. I can't believe God healed me. Why? Of course he healed you. Of course he saved you. All of these things are easy if you understand who God is, and that's what Mary knew. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Of course he's done great things for me. He is mighty. Do you believe God is powerful? Do you truly believe it, or do you worry all the time? Are you afraid all the time? Fear, anxiety, worry, anger, those are saying God can't handle this. God's not enough. But the incarnation says, look how powerful God is. If he can do that, you should realize what he, what he can do in other places. But it's even more detailed than that. Look at verse 52. And he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. What God is saying here is that he's so powerful, he's going to start a revolution. A political revolution. A social revolution. You know in this world, everything's not equal for everybody? Some people get more and some people get less. And you know how long we've been trying to fix that? Well, since the beginning of time. How well has it worked? How well do our politicians take care of us? How well do the oppressed get taken care of? They don't, they never have, and they never will, except for when Jesus comes back. So he's saying, I'm so mighty that the oppression that's been around for thousands and thousands of years, I'm going to reverse it. 
Those people who've always been powerful and who seem to have no... Have you ever seen movies where the government is basically untouchable? And they say, you can't expose them, they control the information? That's kind of true. It's kind of true that you as an individual don't have a lot of power in this world. What Jesus is saying is, what God is saying here is, I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to bring down all the governments. I'm going to bring down the NSA, the CIA, the Russian government. I'm going to bring them all down. That's power. He's going to start a revolution that's going to affect everybody in the world, and he's going to make the weak powerful and the powerful weak. So when you get depressed because of the way people are treated in other countries or in our country, think of what's going to happen. Know that God is powerful enough to change it. But he's not just mighty. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What does it mean to be holy? At its core, it means separate. But separate from what? What God's saying here, what Mary is saying about God from her study of the Old Testament, is that God has a different relationship to sin than we do. We are not holy. God is holy. What does that mean? It means he is averse to sin. Do some things bother you when people do the wrong thing? Does oppression bother you? Does violence bother you? Do your sins bother you? What's the difference? You're kind of okay with your sins. They bother you, but not as much as everybody else's. You've gotten used to them. One of the, one of the things about, humanity, about humans is they adapt to their situation. You ever gone somewhere that smells really bad? Like really bad, like the dump? What happens after a little while? You don't smell it anymore. You've adapted to it. You've, you've acclimated to it. What holiness is saying here is that God never acclimates to sin. He hates it just as much on the first day as on the last day. He never changes in his view of sin. It always bothers him. It's always a terrible thing. Psalm chapter 7 says, God is a just, or uh, Psalm 50, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Is God always perfect? then imperfection always bothers him. His holiness means that he never gets used to sin. But it also means that he's active against sin. Because he hates it, and because he never gets used to it, he's always fighting it. Psalm chapter 7 says, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Are you angry with someone every day? Or do you kind of get over it after a while? Put it out of your mind move away, leave them behind. God is angry with the wicked every day. He says, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. You see, God is holy, and that means, like a fire, he burns up that which is not holy. He doesn't get used to sin. He doesn't ignore sin. He destroys it. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. That's what holiness means. That's what Mary got. Mary understood that God hates sin, and God is destroying sin. It's revealed in our natures. You see, we get used to it and overlook it until it's revealed by something. I was reading a book about the Civil War and the events leading up to it. And this, this guy was explaining the causes for it, how, how we went into such a terrible war. And he says, though Americans before the war had thought themselves especially enlightened, religious, and peace-loving, they had learned through their own wartime enthusiasm, like Cook wrote, that man is fierce and a blood animal under his broadcloth and spotless linen. 
In other words, war came naturally to them when they met opposition. Why should they not plunge into violence? Before the Civil War, we lived in an enlightened culture. But a switch flipped, and we're killing each other. Bloodshed, like, it was hard to imagine. One guy said that the wars in Europe stood up and looked at our war because it was so bad. What happened? Nothing happened. The nature was revealed. God sees that every day. He doesn't need a war to show us how bad we are. He doesn't need us killing people to show us that we're murderers. God sees that every day, and he hates it just as much as the first time he saw it. And he's not going to let that stand. Now, Mary, I'm sure, was a nice girl and very peace-loving, but she understood that God was holy. So why was she so happy? See, Mary was not perfect. I know the Catholics say that Mary, perpetual virgin, was sinless. She was not sinless. Because it says here, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. Perfect people don't need saviors. Mary needed a Savior. Mary was a bad person. She sinned against God. But then she says, God is powerful and holy, and I magnify him. I'm comforted by it. Why? See, if you don't understand what a bad person you are, then a Savior is nothing to you. You see, Jesus born in a manger only means something if you need it. Do you need it? Do you need a Savior? Or are you doing fine on your own? But if you do need a Savior, if you realize that God's holy, consuming fire is coming for you, here's what the Bible says. He's shown the strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud and exalted the lowly. He has helped his servant Israel. Verse 50, and his mercy is on those who fear him. You see, God is powerful. God is holy. But God is also merciful. If you don't have all three of those, you don't have a Savior. You take one of those away, and it means nothing. Keller says, a God who is only holy would not have come down to us in Jesus Christ. He would have simply demanded that we pull ourselves together, that we be moral and holy enough to merit a relationship with him. On the other hand, a deity that was an all-accepting God of love would not have needed to come to earth either. This God of the modern imagination would have just overlooked sin and evil and embraced us. Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas. Do you like Christmas? Do you like Jesus coming down, born in a manger, little baby Jesus? A God that's just love doesn't need to come down and suffer. And a God that's just purely holy wouldn't have wanted to. There's no Christmas unless you have a perfectly holy God who's also merciful, who's our Savior. You see, Mary talks about a promise here. He says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. To, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. That promise was given 2,000 years before Mary was born. Think about that. That's how long ago Jesus was born, 2,000 years ago. Mary's claiming a promise that was 2,000 years old. What did that promise say? It said that God was going to make a costly sacrifice. See, God made promises to us that cost him. He says, I'm going to do something that I don't have to do, that's going to make me pay. He made a costly sacrifice. He made costly promises. He says, I don't have to do anything, but I'm going to make a promise, not just to help you, but to pay for it myself. That's what the incarnation is. The incarnation is God saying, I made promises that can't be kept unless I come down there myself. 
I have to step into your world. Otherwise, I can't keep my promises. Think about that. God in heaven having to come down to this world knowing what would happen. Do you ever think of God as a courageous person? You don't, do you? Jesus had courage. It took courage to come into our world, suffer, and die. That's why we celebrate courage in movies and in books and in stories. We love to see the person who, against all odds, steps up and takes on the government, the empire, whatever. The dragon. What's the age-old story of the knight going into the dragon's lair and taking on this massive dragon? Why? What's so noble about that? It's because it's dangerous and scary. That's what happened to God. Keller says, if you think it takes courage to be with Jesus, to be a Christian, consider that it took infinitely more courage for him to be with you. Only Christianity says one of the attributes of God is courage. No other religion has a God who needed courage. You see, God becoming man was hard. That was tough. Because Jesus felt what man feels, except he knew how it ended. That's the sacrifice he had to make to keep his own promises. But more than that, he promised to come down and die. You see, what Mary says here, God is holy and God is powerful and God is just, means that God punishes sin. But God is also merciful. He loves sinners. How do those two meet? If God hates sin and loves sinners, how can he be the same person? See, someone had to come and stand in between those two things. Someone had to stand between the God who is just and the God who is love. The crucifixion is God making a promise to save us and making a promise to punish sin and keeping both of them. He said, I will punish the wicked. He says here, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. (coughs) He will scatter the proud. He will destroy the wicked, and he will save his people. And he does it on the cross. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means no exceptions. All have sinned. You are a sinner. You deserve for the consuming fire of God to destroy you. But are justified by grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the baby that was born in the manger whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, you never use that word. You know what it means? It means a covering. It means something that comes between something else. You see, God says, you're all sinners, for all have sinned, and you're justified. And Jesus is what gets in between those two things. So God says, I'm a consuming fire, and I'm going to destroy the sinner. And Jesus steps in between the consuming fire and us. And what happens to him? He's destroyed. He's burned up. God made a promise to save us, and to keep that promise, he had to pay for it. So Mary's saying, I don't have problems. I've got a Messiah who's going to step between me and the real problems, and it's going to cost him everything. Do you see Christ that way? Do you see Christ standing between you and God? taking the wrath of God, being burned up for you so that you can live in peace? That's the gospel. The gospel says that God takes the punishment for you. You deserved it. We deserve to be burned up. There's no grace unless you deserve punishment. That's why he says, how do you respond to this? How did Mary respond to this? By saying, I need it. 
but she also prophesies. He has shown strength with his arm to save, yes, but also he has scattered the proud in their imagination. Some of us think we're okay. Some of us are proud. Some of us think that we're doing okay. God doesn't stand in for you. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know who God saves? Terrible people. God saves the wicked, but he only saves the wicked who admit that they're wicked. He does not save the wicked who won't admit it. And if you're here and you won't admit that you need a savior, you won't have one. But if you admit that no matter how good you look on the outside or how good you feel on the inside and how well you're doing, you're at the bottom of the rung, you're going to be scattered, that you have nothing to offer, then God says, okay, now I'll save you. That's what Mary did. You see, poor people get this a little bit easier because the world doesn't tell them they're special. The world never told Mary she was special. They told her she was worthless. And so it was easy for her to, to hear God say, you are a wicked person and accept it. But if you're here today and you're a little bit successful in this world, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for you to get into heaven. Amen. Do you hear what Jesus said? If you've got success and money and a little bit of power and and acclaim and friends and a reputation, it's easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle than to get you into heaven. Listen to Mary. He has scattered the proud. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. If you'll come to God and say, I've got nothing to offer, and what I do have makes it worse, God will save you. But if you're thinking you you got a little bit more time, you can make it, God will destroy you. You see the offer God makes? He'll pay for everything. He'll take care of you. He will change your spirit if you just admit you need it. Can you admit that? Don't meet God as a consuming fire. Meet God as the Savior. Jesus, born in a manger, born for us, so that we can have a relationship with God, if we'll admit we need one. That's it. It's the easiest thing and the hardest thing. Drop all your good works, drop all your religiousness, drop all your coolness, and just say, I've got nothing. And then God, who is mighty and holy and merciful, will take you to heaven as if you were perfect. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about God coming down here because we couldn't do it ourselves. Will you accept that? Let's pray.